Welcome, it's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Ritchie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day, none other than our dear brother, Jackson White, co-founder, editor-in-chief of Politoscope, TYT, Rebel HQ, creator and host on YouTube channel, Politics and Paper. Always a fascinating breakdown. Top story of the day, Donald Trump sends threatening message to, well, you guess. Here it is. Things to you that have never been done before. If you around with us, if you do something bad to us, we are going to do things to you that have never been done before. If you around with us, if you do something bad to us, we are going to do things to you that have never been done before. I want to remind everyone that Donald Trump a few days ago received clarification, acknowledgement that he is the target of a criminal investigation into his role post losing the election, his role in trying to overthrow democracy. Multiple aspects of this action will be investigated from his animation of the crowd on January 6th to attempting you know, to persuade the Secretary of State for Georgia to just find more votes. And then the fake electoral, uh, electoral college uh, scheme. All of that is on the table. Let's put it up. Former President Donald Trump decided to share a clip early Thursday morning with his 2024 campaign logo on it, in which he could be heard threatening revenge and using the F word. The clip from a verified account on Trump's truth social called MAGA.com. Shared the nine second video two days ago with the caption, we aren't afraid of them in the video. Trump says over an image of his face and eventually his campaign logo. If you F around with us, if you do something bad to us, we are going to do things to you that have never been done before. Trump shared the clip without context, but on Tuesday, Trump made similar comments regarding special counsel Jack Smith, the man in charge of the investigation against him. Trump was posed to question on Iowa's The Simon Conway Show about the possibility of Smith seeking jail time for the former president. Quote, I think it's a very dangerous thing to even talk about because we do have a tremendously passionate group of voters, much more passion than they had in 2020, and much more passion than they had in 2016, Trump replied. Fire reported, Trump made the remark on Rush Limbaugh's show in the context of talking about Iran many years ago. Wow, there you have it. Now, let me say this. Everybody can read between the lines. I don't even know if there's really anything in between. I think this is a direct line. Uh, Trump has said the crowd is more passionate now than in 2016 and 2020. I don't want you to miss that point. It is easy to dismiss the rhetoric 
Trump says at times. But every now and then, we do need to pay attention. The government needs to pay attention and prepare. When Trump said he could commit murder before he was president, but he said he could commit murder and his people would still follow him. We all laughed instead of learned. We all provided comedic commentary instead of taking it seriously. We were wrong on that, he was correct. I think this is one of those rare moments when Donald Trump has told the truth. I think Trump is well aware that his crowd, his cronies, his cult is now more vicious, more passionate than ever. And what he's signaling directly to the federal government is that while being under investigation for animating violence against the United States government while being president of the United States, he is damn sure willing to do it while he is not. I think that what we have on our hands really is like a massive case study in the impacts of entertainment culture and confirmation bias. Because when you pointed out that Donald Trump said he could go on Fifth Avenue and you know off somebody and his supporters wouldn't leave him. Like you pointed out, we're seeing more and more that that's true. This man's about to get indicted for a third time. He may get indicted four or five times before the presidential elections come along. And I mean, will it take six or seven for the base to truly turn from him? That only further confirms that, oh well, the deep state must be after him because if they weren't, then he, you know, he he wouldn't have this much heat on him. The same type of thing around like Andrew Tate. Like I'm totally innocent. I'm completely innocent of everything. Like you got to be guilty of something. And oftentimes what Republicans will do is they won't say Trump's innocent, they'll just say, yeah, well, Biden isn't innocent either. So, you know, that 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 just nullifies it completely. But I think one of the things that makes Trump so dangerous and how he got here is because in a lot of ways he isn't a serious person. So he didn't take it seriously. Like he, he's been a public clown for decades. Everyone's always known he's kind of just a showman. I don't think anybody really ever assumed that he truly would take this much hold over the nation, including himself. There's no way he really thought that he would win this election. And I mean, in 2016, and now it's just follow him up until this point. So, I mean, whether he shows up to the debates or not won't make a difference to his base. If he shows up, he's going to kill everybody except for maybe Chris Christie. That'll make him look like a strong man. If he doesn't show up, well, I'm up by dozens of points anyway. So, it's literally, nothing that he does matters. Literally, you make such a profound point. He's able to avoid any type of adverse judgment from his political base. Meaning there's virtually, as you have said, nothing he can do that would cause them to say, "Mm, I cannot support you any longer. All right, we will follow the story as it develops. Hell of a thing, Florida, remember? They just passed a mandate, mandating what? Slavery be taught in one context, that it benefited black people. I thought, you know, since this was done by way of a public vote by government officials, that you should know who these government officials are. Let's put them up full mass. State Board of Education members, the chair is Ben Gibson, who happens to be an attorney at law. 
Ben Gibson believes that slavery should be taught to middle schoolers in particular as a great benefit to black people in America. Ben has been active in this organization since 2017. He was appointed twice by the current governor and confirmed by the Florida Senate. Uh, also, Vice Chair Ryan Petty was appointed by Governor DeSantis, DeSatan, excuse me, to the board in January 2020. Per Gibson's bio on the Department of Education site, it says, growing up, the son of two licensed mental health counselors, Ben is passionate about ensuring that the mental health needs of Florida students are a top priority. He believes that every student should have the same opportunity to learn and parents should have meaningful educational choices and input regarding their child's education, regardless of where they live in Florida or their family's economic situation. He is a strong advocate for empowering parents to make the best educational choices for their children. Now, I do find it ironic that black parents and white parents, frankly, and all parents who oppose the new mandate. Why is it that their opposition of this new curriculum mandate, why is it that their proclamations are not heard? Why do they not get choice here? Why are they not able to eliminate the curriculum like two white parents were able to do as it relates to African American studies? There's more. Per Petty's bio on the Department of Education site, Ryan lost his daughter Elena in a tragic school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day 2018. Elena was one of 17 students and teachers killed. Since the tragedy that took their daughter, Ryan and his wife Kelly have been actively involved in the public policy arena as advocates for improving school safety through early identification and intervention of potential threats. Let's put up the rest of the cast of characters. You're looking at five Karens who were appointed to the Florida Board of Education. Uh, you have left to right, Monesia T. Brown, uh, the Director of Public Affairs and Government Relations for Walmart Incorporated, that's a regular job. Esther Bird is a legal assistant, okay? And Dr. Grazi Pazzo Christie is a radiologist. Bottom left to right, you have Kelly Garcia, who is a school teacher, and Marilyn Magar, former GOP member and speaker pro tem of the Florida House of Representatives. Magar's stance on education was supporting more accountability and choice in the Florida education system. All Board members are in fact parents. Esther Bird stirred controversy when she tweeted about the January 6th riot, the terrorist attack at the US Capitol a year before her appointment. The tweet read, in the coming civil wars. Did you hear me? In the coming civil wars, we the people versus the radical left and we the people cleaning up. The Republican Party team rosters are being filled. 
every selected official in DC will pick one. There are only two teams with us or against us. This individual is appointed to the Florida Board of Education, has openly called for civil war, has openly called for war against this very country. There's more. Meanwhile, the only teacher on the board, all right, let's put it up. Kelly Garcia was appointed to the State Board of Education by Governor DeSatan in March of 2023 after serving on the Board of Trustees of the Florida Virtual School. She is in fact a Florida certified teacher from Tampa with a decade of experience teaching in charter public and private schools. She has worked in education policy with Michelle Rees organization, Students First, where she collaborated with the Urban League and Foundation for Florida's Future. It is a damn shame, madam. You have given all of those organizations a bad name and those that already had a bad name, you just gave them a worse one. Who's in charge of this? Put them up. To Satan himself. The new history standards approved Wednesday were as NBC South Florida reported the updates to the African American history curriculum required by the controversial 2022 law. DeSantis dubbed the stop wrongs to our kids and employees act. It's called the stop woke act in short. As I have said before, these individuals are not playing checkers. They're playing chess. Democrats are still responding by and large as if this is one move and you make a counter move. They make another move and you make a counter move. This is not the game they are playing. Democrats need to wake up. They're playing a game of chess. The strategy involved, you have to remember they started on these laws in 2020, 2021. These laws are stacking on top of each other, allowing for the next law to be given. But without the previous law, the new law would not be possible. Let me explain. Without the 2022 Stop Woke Act, you do not have the legal framework to implement such a ridiculous mandate inside of public education. But with the Stop Woke Act of 2022, you provide the perfect framework in order to present such an adverse educational policy. So I was actually talking about this earlier on my stream and it's just really interesting how Ron DeSantis, I mean, he's the governor, so ultimately the buck stops with him, but he's more and more becoming the face of everything that's wrong with Florida. And how since he's been in office, Florida has just been moving at light speed to do everything that could possibly be unpopular. I mean, some of the ahistorical points were like, well, you know, slavery taught African-Americans some skills and you know, those carried into new generations or that, well, there's actually was a little bit of violence on the other side as well. Like, well, violence for what? To defend themselves or the rebellions to try to free themselves. Um, it's just, it's completely ridiculous for people who claim to not even want critical race theory to be in school for them to go through this drastic of a length to rewrite history. Especially to people who do this really don't know that much about what they're trying to get at. Because the thing about slavery is it's much bigger than the United States. It's some, it's a human condition. It's part of what we do to one another, which is part of why it's so important to be involved in the political process. Because while humans have very ugly and negative sides, 
sides of us. We have very beautiful and good sides of us as well. We got to keep ourselves in check. But the more we learn about history, how it, um, the, uh, slavery rather, how it's functioned throughout history, how it's built the world throughout time, the more you understand us, ourselves and the human condition. So pretending like slavery wasn't as gruesome as it was and always has been, as if Google doesn't exist, like what you don't stop people in Florida from getting on Google, how far are you really gonna take this? So yeah. yeah. Yeah, and one of the realities is that it will likely connect to other states. Other states will look yeah. at the Florida model and they will start to implement a similar model themselves and remember, uh, this is to stop the future problem solvers from knowing there is a problem to solve. All right, pensions being not only disrupted, but disappearing. Yellow freight workers losing their pension, getting the news this is a great potential. It may happen. Here's how one worker responded. That man has every right to feel exactly how he feels. Imagine working for over 30 years for a company. You have a contract. This contract says if you do this, we're going to do that. You show up, you show up no matter what. You show up not feeling well. You show up when tragedy happens in your family. You show up even though you would prefer to be at a graduation or maybe a baseball game. You show up, you show up when others don't, you show up. You put in the work because you know there's a reward at the end of this. And then you work this way for over 30 years to come in one day and be told that your 30 years of work may not be properly compensated. All of a set, all of a sudden, your world, your plans, your hopes, your dreams, they come crashing. They first crash mentally, thinking, what am I going to do now? How am I going to make sure my family survives now? Hell, how am I going to survive now? I gave them what they told me. And they did not give me what I was promised. The Teamsters Union is threatening a strike against trucking giant Yellow after the company missed healthcare and pension payments, putting fresh pressure on one of the country's biggest trucking companies as the carrier seeks to avoid bankruptcy. Yellow is under pressure to repay $700 million in federal loans that was made early in the COVID-19 pandemic. It must also pay down an outstanding loan balance of about 500 million owed to a group of lenders led by Apollo Global Management. 
The union said Monday that a board overseeing pension and welfare funds for unionized workers will suspend healthcare benefits and pension accruals from July 23rd unless Yellow makes the needed payments by the end of this week. The Teamsters says that if the payments aren't made, Yellow workers could strike as soon as July 24th. The Board of Trustees of the Central State Southeast and Southwest Areas Health and Welfare Fund, which manages benefits for Teamsters members, says Yellow withheld payments due July 15th and advised it would withhold payments due August 15th. The board said the payments for the two months total more than $50 million. Yellow said in a statement Monday evening, they regretted that the central state's funds had rejected a company request to defer contributions. The official said a pause in payments is needed to preserve liquidity as they seek to negotiate with the Teamsters over plans to streamline the company's operations. We're not giving up, the company said. We will work with all parties involved to come to a speedy resolution. Company officials said Tuesday that Yellow intends to repay the funds with interest immediately upon securing additional financing and has requested the funds to discuss acceptable terms. As of this morning, workers are still awaiting conclusion to these negotiations. Here it is. So fellas, fellas, what y'all think about today being the last day of Yellow if they don't pay that $50 million? So damn sad. We want to thank the individual who made us aware, made the world aware. TikToker Don Wright 40, who has been sharing these videos of the plight of his fellow workers. We salute you. We thank you for your leadership. I'm going to say this all hands should be on deck here. From the government to private enterprise, obviously the executives at Yellow. All hands should be on deck to solve a problem. Elected officials, where are you? You're literally elected to figure stuff like this out. So that people, put them up. These men work hard and they're dedicated. And up until now had great respect for this company. We can bail out banks. We will bail out financial industry. But we don't have a political class willing to bail them out. Jack's thoughts. 
Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, he, like you said, he has absolutely every right to be as upset as he was simply because he doesn't have it in him to give another 30 years to anything. And one of the most messed up parts about anything along this type of scenario or situation is how much kind of gaming up and coercion goes into keeping people on the job. Because it's not like that, there's no way the union or anybody that they work for didn't know that the money was running out or that they were having issues. You got to keep people on board. You got to keep on selling them a dream and sometimes away. I'm 31 years old. That man's been working as long as I've been alive. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm just, I'm just I just now I'm like having enough experiences to look back and think upon to even make sense out of anything. And he's been working as long as I've been alive. So to just throw that away, um, you know, it, it really just sheds a light too on it's going to be that much harder to attract workers to be loyal to anything. That 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 you know puts a stain on the job market as a whole. We've seen a lot of strikes, and we need to continue to see workers come together and, and do general strikes because that's really the only thing that we can do. Especially, you pointed out our lawmakers really aren't inept uh, to handle the situation. There's too much corporate dollars in the way of it, and a lot of them just simply don't care. Um, but we have to keep on coming together as people. We got to keep on forming general strikes. We got to keep on building communities like the one we're on now, like Indisputable, anything like that. And we got to keep on coming together because that's the only way. Keep the pressure high, gentlemen. Make sure that we are aware of any updates that may come. And for those who are watching and you care, make sure your voices are heard too, right? We got more on the other side, it's indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back, we got a lot of show left always, always thankful for every single one of you. Uh, let me remind everybody, Series XM Urban View every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It is the Dr. Rashad Richard Review, the most amazing one hour of your entire weekend. I give you everything you may have missed and things you need to know moving into your work week. Don't miss it, you miss a day, you miss a lot. Also, my op-ed is in Rolling Out Magazine, an op-ed about America's hypocrisy. America's hypocrisy and what we're gonna do about it. You can find that op-ed at rollingout.com, rollingout.com. Okay, let's read some of these comments. Tinaj714, I think he's calling for civil war, just saying. Yeah, all right, Mo Fury, uh, yellow is exacerbating the problem with modern capitalism. They're going to borrow more money to keep doing something wrong. According to the internet and six member executive staff at yellow is pulling down a total of 15 million per year, 15 million per year. I bet those dudes get a raise of saving money for the shareholders by screwing the workers, yep. Fritz, uh, I think this is Jacquez. Snacks of Jackson. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Fritz. That, that's Fritz. She called me Snacks, and you know what I'm saying? That, that's my official I, new nickname. <laughs> I thought it was a typo, dear brother, but. Oh, no, no. No, no. no. She, she said that on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Snacks. she meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it feels like ages since I've been. Since I've seen your beautiful face, hello, Dr. Rich. I'm not <laughs> neglecting you. I just love my snack. Yes, Fr Fritz is a regular on the politics <laughs> and paper. Check me out. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I thought that was a typo. I'm sorry. It's all right. Now you know. Now you know. Now I know. Right. That's exactly yeah, right. right. <laughs> all right, Pitchfork Dragon. I really wish you hadn't done that, Trump's legal team. You know, 
I thought about the Trump legal team and I'm like, it's two ways you can look at this. Either damn, this guy's really going to harm our ability to defend him or wow, more billable hours. It's two ways to look at it. You wanna call the police on him for having a barbecue on a In Sunday. You're gonna feel great, back off. I'm gonna tell you there's an African American man threatening my life. This particular male Karen was walking up, as you can see, walked up to a teenager to tell the teenager to move along, walk away. And then decides to call the teen the N word, shouts it in front of everybody. As you could hear, there were a number of anti Karens in the vicinity. Let's put his picture up for a mass. So he believes that it is okay to act in such a way against our youth. I do not believe this is appropriate behavior. Now this is just my personal belief. I have a few personal beliefs to highlight. Sir, the way you walk is indicative of an individual who is trying to look bigger than he is <laughs> because he's small on the inside. The way you have your shorts rolled up just above your kneecap, sir, is indicative of an individual that I would not sit down and have lunch with. And the fact that you threaten children, well, that just makes you a coward. Uh, let's put him up again. Somebody knows this clown. I don't know him, but if you do, you know where to find me. Okay, Jackson, thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, indicative of him. He, he's also not very big on the outside either. I, he looks <laughs> like he, he looks like an average sized person, and he's like puffing. He also looks like he somehow has only ever done bench press without using his arms. Like his chest <laughs> is like. His chest is like swollen out like he got implants, but funny. his but his arms are like really little. And he's just like stuck like this, like C-3PO, like he can't really yeah. do nothing with his arms. So I don't really know what type of bows he thought he was going to. I mean, look at him, you see he's stuck like this, like yeah. there ain't nothing he could do. You know, he good and well, like right, no, good and well, if somebody slapped him up, he would just fall and play the victim. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's right, those are the types of people that, it's really not worth engaging with them. I mean, like if they attack you, then sure, defend yourself. But like, those are the type of people don't go after them because it's just more trouble than it's worth. Because they probably just gonna walk away at the end of the day, and uh, that's their problem. That's their life. So there you go. And I, I want to say a big, a big shout out to the young people who were light years more mature than he was. Yeah. Literally talked to the guy, said, "Listen, man, calm down." They right? could have jumped him. They could have whooped his ass. Yeah. Period.
but they decided to be the adults, ironically. All right, hell of a thing, FBI now investigating who punched a deputy who punched a woman who was carrying a baby. There's an update to this. I want to take you to the LA Sheriff's Office. Here it is. No, I care about you to understand that there were multiple opportunities for the officers to de-escalate. Let me take you to this video, here it is. Pick us up and come get the kids and put them in car seats. He has a car seat, okay, he can go breath. home. All I need to do is go get mine, I swear to God. So do you want me to grab the baby or are you gonna hand the baby over nicely? Okay. I can have somebody come get her. No, no okay. we're not going to do that. I don't want to have to snatch her and have my partners grab your arms. That's the last thing I okay, want to do. We're trying not to do that. If you don't want to do that, then why won't you just let us get Because we're going to take the baby you. one way or another, okay? And I don't want to be rude about it. Can you please just listen to me? We have, okay. Please. Okay, she's going to grab the baby. Can you guys, wait, wait, no, listen, please, please. You're making it Please understand, in an era where we see video of police officers killing unarmed individuals who did nothing wrong. We have seen police officers physically attack minors who did nothing illegal. We have seen police officers turn off their body camera in order to physically assault and brutalize another human being. All of that is inside of us. We cannot unsee what we see, a mother who has authentic connection and love to a child. What mother wants to give her child away to a group of individuals who have shown their absolute worst? De-escalation was warranted, it was needed. It should have been treated as a circumstance requiring special attention. A remedy was offered. Allow the friend, allow the other individual to come back with a car seat and take the child. Officers, no, we're just not going to do that. No explanation as to why. 
your shift is not about to end. You got eight hours here. Why can't you wait? So that the child is not traumatized, so that the mother is agreeable, and you don't have to punch a mother to rip her child out of her hands. I know some people will cite law. Cite law in this case all you want. Law is adverse to humanity and decency if you think this is legal. Let's put up his picture, buck stops with him. The FBI is now investigating the cops who punched a woman holding her baby. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna has condemned one of his former deputies for punching a woman in her face multiple times as she held the three week old infant in her arms. Three weeks, Luna calling the officer's actions unacceptable is now working with federal authorities according to the report to bring justice for the mother. Footage of the incident was released a year after it happened on July 13th, 2022. The body cam recorded incident began as a traffic stop in California. Deputies observed a motorist driving without having their headlights turned on shortly around midnight. The male driver was carrying four women and three babies in the vehicle when he was pulled over. After an initial inspection, deputies alleged they smelled alcohol coming from the parties and that the children were in danger, according to their initial report. The infants were being held in the arms of the mothers without the use of child car seats, Luna said. The deputies decided to make a decision to apprehend every adult passenger on charges of felony child endangerment, which was already extreme. Everybody in the car got charged with felony child endangerment. The driver was hit with additional charges for driving with a suspended license and while under the influence of alcohol. The, we don't have a conviction yet, I don't believe. During the detainment, deputies used force on two of the women. One of the uses of force involved a mother and her three week old infant who was refusing to let go of her child. During the encounter, deputy punched the female twice in the face, said Sheriff Luna, who was hired in December 2022. Body cam captures one woman holding the three week old baby saying, you're not taking my baby. I'm not about to let you take my baby. Luna said, according to the Washington Post, she was still holding the infant in one of her arms when she was struck in the face, according to the sheriff's department. This use of force incident was assigned immediately to the Internal Affairs Bureau for it to investigate. The deputy also was relieved of his duties. The sheriff spoke of how the incident took place one year ago before his term as sheriff began. And now he took swift action upon learning of this incident several days ago. Sheriff Luna said he instructed his office's professional standards division to refer the case to the DA's office for criminal consideration. And that the Los Angeles FBI office also would be looking into the matter. The FBI has now opened an official investigation into the sheriff's office, the nation's largest sheriff's department. After several reports regarding deputies excessive use of force were submitted to their office according to ABC 7. Now, we have covered the LA Sheriff's Office multiple times on this show. In the context of criminality, in the context of threats to the cops, and in the context of police brutality against everyday people. There's also 
another dimension of this, we have talked about it on the program as well. There are actual gang members inside of the LA Sheriff's Department. So understand the irony of that. Literally, you have a group of people operating like a gang. And then inside of that de facto operation is an actual organized gang. All right, Jackson, thoughts here. I mean, you know, regardless of what was going on in the car, regardless of the situation, um, the police officers obviously were wrong. But I think more importantly, the amount of money that uh, municipalities get every year just goes to weapons and ammunition, basically. I mean, imagine how many people could be uh, in a department to handle stuff like this, uh, to specifically go out and talk things down, talk situations through. I mean, guns weren't necessary, they didn't bring the guns out, but still, I mean, police officers, if you got a gun on you, you got the nightstick, you're pretty much out there to, well, you know, in theory, protect people from danger. In theory, you know, ready to to you know use your weapons for some reason. This wasn't a situation for that. We know that police officers typically are called in for stuff that they're just absolutely not qualified for. But at the end of the day, if you don't de-escalate, it's going to end up in violence. That that's the only that's the only thing that can happen. Um, so it's just imagine how much better police departments could be if the money was allocated differently. But then they wouldn't quite be protecting what they protect. So it's just, this honestly was one of the hardest videos I've ever watched because it's like, I mean, what, like in no way was that handled correctly. And then my man was like, I know, let me punch her. Like, really bro, like, come on. It's it just, the police in this country aren't trusted for this reason. That's right, that's right. And accountability has to be allocated swiftly, swiftly. The us and them mentality between copy community can at least be resolved in part by swift accountability when things happen adverse to community members. We have more on the other side is indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back, we have a lot of show left. Let me read a few of these comments. Um, next TYT reporter, you're putting your child in danger, so we are going to punch you in the face and put your child in more danger to protect your child. Insane, right? Hassan Thomas, thank you for that. Doc, if UPS and Yellow Strike at the same time, the supply chain will have catastrophic results. I agree with you and that's why I'm calling for all hands on deck to solve the problem rather than point fingers. Right now you have a potential issue that could not only disrupt the lives of the individuals who work, but millions of people connected to the auxiliary services related. So I agree with you 100%. C. Michael Henson, thank you, C. Michael. I'm like you, Doc. It would be hard for me to take that male care seriously with those shorts and the way he was walking. It looked like an SNL skit. It, it did. All right. Very sad story. A cheerleading coach decided to plant cameras and prayed on a kid. Put it up, full mask. Damn shame, 27 year old Tennessee man, James Henry. James Henry So has been arrested for committing heinous acts against a minor in the premier athletes training facility. This is the same cheerleading facility that had an incident that in 2021 where a predatory coach placed cameras in the restrooms and changing areas in premier, mostly utilized by female minors. According to the report from WSMMV, this is not the first time Premier Athletics has been associated with felony criminal activity. 
Hidden cameras were reportedly found stashed throughout the women's restroom and changing areas in 2021. The digital cameras contained about 60 videos of mostly minor females in various stages of undress, WSMV reported. That former coach was Andrew Hallford, who last year pleaded guilty to multiple charges of attempted, especially aggravated sexual exploitation of a minor in connection with the cameras and was sentenced to 24 years in prison. The compliance administrator for Premier said that as soon as they found out about the allegations in March 2023, they removed So from his position and reported the allegations to the Franklin PD. So is currently being held on a $300,000 bond and is scheduled to appear in court on July 26. Quote, all of the charges were against one victim, 17 year old female and occurred during a single encounter. It happened inside of Premier Athletics on Gothic Court, FPD said in the release. An investigation was initiated after the incident was reported in March. Results from that investigation, including an exhaustive review of evidence in the case, were presented to a Williamson County grand jury. Once they returned to charges, their arrest is so last night. Prosecutors further alleged that so did inappropriately touch the victim who did not consent. And in doing so did cause bodily injury to the minor child according to aggravated sexual exploitation charges. Um, We continue to see these stories. We have reported on multiple stories like this. Individuals who are supposed to be in positions of public trust, engaged in some of the most heinous activity you can imagine. We just reported on the story not too long ago, where literally police officers were doing the same thing, not only against their female colleagues, but anybody who went inside of that particular changing room. What did the cops do? They blamed the person who already died and said there was an open investigation. At least in this case, there seems to be some level of accountability, at least turning in the right direction. But I gotta say this, for multiple incidents to happen at one facility like this, there seems to be something else going on. And I think maybe we're at the tip of the iceberg of discovery. Why is this happening so much at one facility and within a relative short amount of time? I got questions. We will follow as the story develops. Jackson, thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, culture is everything. And if they were able to do stuff like this kind of back to back, then obviously there definitely was some type of cooperation on. There had to be going on, rather. There's had to be some type of conversation like, oh, check this out, check this out type of deal. The uh, level of sophistication that it takes to install cameras and basically do things because you know it's wrong and you don't want to get caught doing it. Um, Often it's the people who do the watching who need to be watched the most or people who are in positions where you're supposed to trust them who need to be looked at because it's so easy for them to be uh, to hide in plain sight. Obviously, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust anyone and everyone. But still, oftentimes people who are in these types of positions are the ones who get away with things like this the most because you suspect them the least. Um, But we got to get people like this out of institutions and we got to set an example. Yep, there you go. All right, I actually have some good news. It's a great thing. Foster children are now able to attend universities at no cost 
it includes room, it includes food, it includes it all. Let me tell you why I'm so happy about this. Cuz I was a foster child and I remember struggling, trying to figure out how to pay for college. Hope Scholarship, which is a Georgia based scholarship program. I qualified for it, but it wasn't enough. Pell Grant helped pay the rest. That was a federal program. Let's put it up full mass, the people who are responsible. Through the new Fostering Futures program, California will allocate $25 million to cover tuition for foster youth attending a California State University, University of California, or a community college. The funding also covers the cost of housing, the cost of books, and the cost of food. State Senator Ashby authored the bill, and the bill became law as part of a budget agreement signed by Governor Newsom on Monday. Let's keep the pictures up just for a moment. Thank you. Senator Ashby said in a statement, Far too many foster youth want to go to college and are unable to afford it. This funding will ensure that California's most vulnerable young people can take advantage over their lives by seeking higher education. For foster youth who have lost everything, this bill provides hope that they could attend college without crippling debt. Take it one critical step forward toward the state's goal of making college attainable for all. And making foster youth the first to achieve debt free college in California. There are approximately 60,000 children in the state's foster care system. The lawmakers say the vast majority of them, or 96%, they actually want to receive higher education. While 64% of foster youth graduate high school in California, only 4% currently obtain a four year college degree, according to Ashby. Shane Harris, a former foster child who now leads the nonprofit People's Association of Justice Advocates, told KFMB TV, quote, in the state of California, your dreams are possible. You can become anything you want to be. And now you can go to college for free. This is going to be such a game changer because as a foster kid, you see things that others do not. You, you experience things that others will not. You see problems and challenges and barriers that others do not. If you are ever empowered to become a person who can actually change policy, you have a context that no one has. To the foster children, I want you to remember everything that happens does not happen to you, it happens for you. Take everything and use it as your catalyst, your guide, your moral compass, and your power. All right, Jackson, thoughts? 
I think this is a beautiful example of how uh, much more quickly state and local politics can move. That's right. Um, something like this necessarily won't pass on a federal level. Not that it's impossible, but you just have so many more strings attached. You got so much more bureaucracy. You got so much more to deal with. And so oftentimes we overlook how getting involved in just city council politics can uh, implement policies that even could help foster kids in a smaller city, not an entire state of California. I've given an example of a college uh, tuition program that was made in, in St. Louis in the town that I grew up in um, that was implemented through city council that helped the uh, kids who go to public schools basically start college with some type of a savings account. So again, I, my biggest contribution, and again, I'm only realizing now, you know, I, my parents have been solid relationship, they still together. I, and, and what I saw and how that shaped me growing up. So just in terms yeah. of the challenges that people really face, just with things like conflict resolution, being able to trust other people at all, like yeah. stuff like that, that really just presents a huge challenge that people really don't think about until they get older and start having like relationships with people, not necessarily romantic relationships, but all, all types of things. Yep. So again, on the opposite spectrum, me not having to go through any of that showed me how much of a blessing it is to not have to go through it. So this is an absolutely very much needed program. And again, the power of state and local politics is much faster. That's right, very well said. We got more on the other side, it's indisputable stick and stay. All right, welcome back, a lot of show left. Always good to opine, I appreciate you. Let's go to Marjorie Lemons. Thank you so much for that. Number one fan. I feel that right here. Really appreciate it. And one more. One more. Then, after becoming a CASA, thank you for being a CASA. I'm a CASA as well, court appointed special advocate. I'm a full to CASA. After becoming a CASA, I was so impressed with the services which were available to foster youth. Foster children may have been dealt a bad hand, but these services help stack the deck in their favor, I agree. And once again, CASA is a program created outside of the government in order to address issues related to foster youth. Okay, Fulton County, Georgia, you know the same place where Donald Trump is about to get indicted. Fulton County, Georgia has approved a study of reparations bill. (laughs) Trump in trouble, let's put it up full mass. Commissioners for the Central County of Atlanta voted, and this is Fulton County, to approve in a four to two vote a study that will examine the social, economical, and political treatment of the county's black residents over the last three centuries, as well as the potential for reparations to their descendants. It is now passed. Let me give you background on the study. Fulton County is following suit with other cities, counties, and states across the nation that are commissioning reparation studies to evaluate the effects of slavery. The task force serves as an advisory board to the county and has been commissioned with assessing objectives and policies in the form of reparations that will support the revitalization and stabilization of the county's black population. The $210,000 that's being spent on this newly approved study comes out of the renewed $250,000 budget, the group was allocated earlier this year to continue working on those recommendations. So obviously you have some that oppose it. Bridget Thorne of District 1 opposes it. One of the white commissioners who voted against the measure vocalized her opposition of the study. She called it unwise and divisive, adding that the money could be spent on more immediate needs. 
like overturning elections. I added that part. I didn't. She didn't say that. She said it on the inside. Um, Thorne continues to say this is coming out of taxpayer dollars. This two hundred and ten thousand dollars is coming out of taxpayer dollars. Whatever reparations, whatever they decide, whatever they find, they are going to make the taxpayers pay for it. And we don't have money for a jail. We don't have money for a hospital. That's what we need to be focusing on, fam. You know, if black people were whole, you would have less folk inside of jails because 88% of crime is committed out of lack. You can look it up. There's more. Thorne also noted that the county's reparation task force, which was formed in 2021, is only researching data up until the end of the urban renewal in 1980. And purposely negating the county's numerous costly initiatives that helped marginalize communities since that decade. To me, that's a moot point. Commissioner Abdur Rahman went on the defense against Thorne's viewpoint, stressing that the point of the study is to first determine whether reparations are necessary, and also stating that this expenditure accounts for a small fraction of the budget, which is true. The commissioner says that, and I quote, the purpose of the reparations task force is to evaluate if reparations are warranted. If they are warranted, in what form? Should it be educational? Should it be financial? What should they be? She told Fox 5. To me, if you walk in the shoes of my ancestors and others who are of color, your perspective would not be that. And I just want to give a big shout out. Uh, to that commissioner, to Commissioner Marvin Arrington Jr., who, by the way, has been on the show before, um, who is in support of this bill, uh, was a catalyst to make sure this this actual commission remained in play. A lot of work had to be done to do this politically. A lot of work had to be done in advocacy. So big ups to everyone involved. Marcus Coleman, my friend and homie, who's involved in this as well. We appreciate your continued fight. All right, we will bring you updates, but damn, Jackson. They're mad about even looking into it. You have to right. get, I mean, help me understand this. We don't, we can't look into it. No, we can't look into it because then we might do it. You know what I'm saying? That, that's that's all it is. We can't we can't make that progress. We can't we can't walk. We can't crawl first. You know what I mean? But first of all, I think the the the, the biggest thing that stood out to me among other stuff was you know her pretending to be concerned with like fixing hospitals and jails and like you don't care about those issues. You don't care about solving poverty. You don't you don't care about that at all. And if you did, then you wouldn't mind this study. But again, this is important because, you know, on a broad scale, reparations aren't popular with the country at large. And a lot of it is because, and by that I mean like it's not over 50%, it's not like in the 60%. Right. And a lot of that is because people kind of see it as like impossible or ridiculous or like it's just a bunch of money for no reason. So we kind of got to show that no, this really works. This actually does work. That's right. Uh, so we need a lot more of this. Yep, America loves reparations, just not reparations for descendants of slaves. We've given reparations to the Native American, not to the tune they deserve. We've given reparations to the Japanese, once again, not to the destruction we caused. But reparations is a thing that the American government obviously supports. All right, hell of a story, a baby, a child, let's put it up full mass, was carried by a stray dog out of the trash. Carried to safety. 
This happened in Lebanon. The stray dog was found carrying the abandoned baby girl who had been ditched inside of a garbage bag left outside a municipal building in Lebanon's northern city of Tripoli. This was on Wednesday. A passerby heard the stifled cries of the baby coming from inside the black trash bag, which was being held in the dog's mouth and sprang into action, according to the national. She was first taken to the Islamic hospital by a bystander before being transferred to the government hospital. Pictures circulating online show the infant with abrasions and red bruises across her entire face and body. There have been conflicting reports on the baby's age. Some accounts stated that she was believed to be about four months old, while others claimed she had been born mere hours before being abandoned. As word spread online of the baby's miraculous recovery, many social media users were quick to offer to adopt the child. The little girl's condition was described by the local media as serious but stable. The hospital did not provide additional information as Wednesday was the start of the Islamic New Year, meaning public institutions are shuttered for celebration. Police were investigating the incident and searching for the baby's um, abandoners. So this is, um, wow, right? A stray dog saved the life of a baby in a garbage trash bag. Jackson, thoughts here. And what are the odds? Like right. seriously, what are the odds? If there's some type of if there's some type of force or some type of thing that's looking out, you know what I mean? Like, because again, like I mean, the odds of this have to be like a mil over a million to one. It's in a, it's a baby in a trash bag. Who would have seen it? And a dog of all things. It's not like the dog knew exactly what it was in the bag. It was probably just curious. Like I can, I know something's in here. What is it? You know. So, but uh, it's really sad what we're capable of doing to one another. Um, but you know the fact that this little girl has an opportunity to live a life at all, um, you know what a way to start it. So definitely right. good that, that she was saved. That's right. All right, dear brother, always a pleasure having you on the show. Tell people how they can follow you and check out your great work. Yes, sir. Check me out at YouTube.com/slash at Politics and Paper. I stream Monday through Friday. I got a weekly show. We got a whole lot more coming, and the community is amazingly supportive. So check me out, Politics and Paper. Always good to be here with you. Always good to have you, my friend. All right. Bullpen is next. Stick and stay. All right, let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. In the bullpen today, we have Mr. Parker McCumber, commentator, Young Voices. He is an entrepreneur and commission officer in the Utah National Guard, but he's not speaking in that context. He's speaking as an individual. We're going to chop it up about diversity in the US military, the Republicans stance to eliminate diversity and inclusion programs inside of the military ranks. Mr. McCumber, good day, welcome to Indisputable. Thanks for having me, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity. Same here. I don't want to presume what you know or believe about this particular topic. So if you would give us your ideas and I would then opine. Absolutely, so we're talking in frame of the SCOTUS ruling against affirmative action. And then the Clarence Thomas footnote that specified that military academies were exempt from this policy. First and foremost, my personal belief is that while well-intentioned, Affirmative action kind of created some systematic issues, specifically around stigmatization, reverse discrimination, and tokenism that I feel 
are genuine problems. Uh, but I do believe that affirmative action is very well intended with the desire to benefit historically underprivileged or oppressed communities. Okay, so let me read a few highlights. And I understand the sentiment of your point. We're talking about execution versus policy strength. That the policy may have been derived out of a good faith basis to right a wrong, but implementation could be a little off. Am I correct in that summary of your basic approach here? Uh, yes, I believe that's a pretty good summarization of it. Okay, are you proposing that the US military should eliminate all diversity and inclusion programming because of poor implementation standards in some locations? Uh, so I'm not going to oppose it for that reason. Okay, uh, I would more argue uh, Justice Sotomayor shared a quote in her um, opinion that she was highlighting because of this footnote or special exception for military academies. Uh, that it kind of undermines the argument that the 14th Amendment doesn't categorically uh, prohibit the use of race as a factor in college admissions. And I think that the uh, majority of the Supreme Court kind of created this conundrum for themselves uh, by making an exception for military academies specifically. I believe personally, in my experience with the National Guard especially, uh, one of the things that I very much value as a leader in that organization is the diversity piece. We have people from all different walks of life and different backgrounds and different education. And that brings in unique perspectives to yeah. our organization that allows us to solve problems and move forward. So I definitely recognize that there is a strength in diversity. Mm -hmm. I also recognize that there may be an issue with people facing uh, like I said earlier, tokenism or reverse discrimination. Uh, primarily, you get individuals who question whether or not they're there on their own merit or were they good enough to be there without affirmative action. And I know- Well, let me, allow me to correct you on the record. Sure. I think there's a significant ignorance that permeates outside of the terminology known as affirmative action. Number one, affirmative action is not a policy. Affirmative action is a catch-all phrase to describe a plethora of policies that are aimed at diversity and inclusion. Am I correct on that point? You absolutely are. All right, second point, affirmative action itself has been basically branded as a negative. But when you replace the word affirmative action with another word like inclusion, the vast majority of Americans are for it. And thirdly, the misnomer that affirmative action allows your race to um, override a policy protocol in order to get accepted into a program is a lie. I've been a college professor since 2016. I'm the director of institutional advancement at a major college right now. And I continue to lecture all across the United States of America. Colleges do not, cannot, and will not negate their qualification standards because you happen to be a person of color. You have to already meet the qualification in order to go to the next level of entry. So everyone who is at the college is there because they qualified. And I 100% agree with that. I think that's a very important piece of middle ground that we establish. So I recognize that military academies especially have a very rigorous application standard. I mean, most of these applicants 
Uh, for perspective, between nine and 11% of applicants on average make it into a military academy. So it's very exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the majority of these applicants are obtaining letters of recommendation from congressmen and senators and uh, you know, very noteworthy people of prominence. These people are all working hard to be there, indiscriminate of race. And I think that that is a very important you know, middle ground that, that we establish. I recognize that within this standards are not being compromised. All of those people are qualified to be there. And That's I think correct. that is something that people miss often when they have a conversation about right, affirmative but, action. But Parker, you kind of offered it as a reason to dissuade from the policy. I had to say on record that the policy does not create a special circumstance to override a standard for entry. You submitted that in this conversation, but you knew the truth, but still submitted that in this conversation as you as if you did not. So I think there might have been a misunderstanding there. Okay. I don't think the standard is being compromised for these individuals. I do think that it becomes a problem when you have people who are competing for a slot that race then becomes the tiebreaker if it becomes a tiebreaker. Okay, let me do this because I wanna talk also in the context of what people in the US military are saying. So 42% of service members of color in a new survey, and this is in military.com for those who wanna check it out. They say that they have actually turned down assignments because of racism noted in the ranks. They were concerned about racism and discrimination, so they decided to say no to particular assignments. Also, the survey organized by Blue Star Families found that more than 40% of active duty, active duty personnel factored racial discrimination or safety related to racial discrimination when listing their basing preferences. 33% of active duty families and 34% of veterans in the survey also report concerns about racial and ethnic discrimination with factors in conversations with family members about whether to stay in the military or leave the military. Now, I have never served um, and I make absolutely no no, uh, representations that I understand all of military doctrine and dogma. But I will say this, out of my studies, out of my research, there are six absolute benefits, six absolute benefits to diversity and inclusion. And if you disagree with one of them, tell me, because you are a man who serves. One, enhanced unit cohesion. Two, increased adaptability. Three, improved decision making, knowing that cultural, the cultural awareness is required for good decisions. Four, enhanced recruitment and retention. Five, strategic, um, strategic strengthening of cultural competence. Six, mitigated bias so that you don't have the level of fallout when there is an incident. Do you disagree with anything that I've noticed? No, I don't. I actually think all of those are strengths that I especially see in my involvement with the National Guard right now. Okay. Where I do think there might be a point that we could you know, discuss on. So race is the specific factor then, that tiebreaker, like I said. Justice Roberts had shared in his opinion that schools can and should consider how race influenced the adversity in their lives and how they overcame that. And that should be factored into the application process. And I think that that's a very good point that while we're removing race by removing affirmative action, we're removing race as a decision point itself. We're not removing its ability to be factored based on obstacles being overcome. Right, now I get your point, but when you really look at what 
Justice Roberts said, it's a distinction without a difference. And let me tell you why. The reason that the protocol was implemented in institutions in the first place was because we had an innate understanding that your race, if you were from a particular racial group, you had certain experiences adverse to you. So we're going to take into account, we're going to take into consideration your ability to overcome that level of barrier against you and count it as a leadership qualification and bring you into this institution that you already otherwise qualify for. So do you understand why I would say it is a, a difference or a distinction without a difference? So I think I'm understanding the point that you're you're making here. Mm-hmm. My follow-up to that is kind of under the assumption that I don't believe inherently that any of these admissions organizations or policies that universities hold are inherently racist. I don't think that they're trying to discriminate based on race to begin with. And so while I recognize affirmative action is created in a good faith desire to help these these underprivileged and underrepresented communities out. I feel like a lot of that has kind of been lost over the last few years. I feel like as society has advanced and technology has advanced, and everyone has a higher level of capability just through your smartphones or you know common access to the internet now. People are able to learn and then subsequently overcome very quickly. So I feel yeah. like a lot of that inherent creation of affirmative action has kind of started to be lost due to technology's advancement. I got to say this, Parker. I wish what you said was true. I authentically do. But right now in black communities, there's a 28% digital divide between black communities and damn near every other community that is white. So when you start with that level, almost 30% of a technology or digital divide, you have decreasing access to public libraries. You have increasing and emerging technologies that we are not resourced to receive because the school systems are not bringing in the dollars through the property taxes because the tax evaluation of black communities are so low. It is a cause and effect relationship that creates a cycle of what? Lack. And if you can find your way to overcome that and make it, an institution says, you obviously have a leadership about you and a strength about you that is worthy of top consideration. I don't find there to be anything wrong with that. But I will say this, the fact, and I think you authentically mean what you just said. The fact that you are unaware of that large digital divide that permeates in black communities as it relates to comparison to white communities is where we should start the conversation next time, all right? Absolutely. All right. Thank you for being on the show, brother. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.